Good morning, church. Happy Father's Day. Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles. If you have the Pew Bible in front of you, our CSB will be on page 47 and 48. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. We're going to go through the whole chapter. Again, that's page 47 and 48. Well, Mark started us off last week in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 really is kind of provides this macro view, like it really zooms out. You get the whole forest. You see what's kind of going on in Egypt, what's going on with Israel. You see that Joseph has died, the patriarch, the patriarchal family for the most part, um, the 12 sons who started the 12 tribes. That whole generation has passed away. Israel begins to flourish and multiply and grow. God is fulfilling his promise. But Israel has become slaves. The Hebrews have become slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And as they begin to spread and multiply, right as we looked at last week, Pharaoh begins to uh, tighten up the persecution, tighten up the oppression until literally the the last verse of chapter 1 says, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every son live. This is Pharaoh's final solution, if you will. He's literally wiping out an entire generation of Hebrews. It's incredibly dark days. But what we see is in one of Israel's darkest moments, the Lord is at work, and he is raising up a deliverer named Moses. God would raise up a deliverer, who would pass through the waters, as we're going to see firstly, who would actually come to be rejected by the people he came to save, as we're going to see secondly, and lastly, we're going to see that this deliverer is actually received by the Gentiles. What I want us to see today, most of all, is that what Moses did in part, Jesus does in full. What Moses does imperfectly, Jesus does perfectly. Let's read the text together. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 25. It says, Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you go pharaoh's daughter told her so the girl went and called the boy's mother then pharaoh's daughter said to her take this child and nurse him for me and i will pay you your wages so the woman took the boy and nursed him when the child grew older she brought him to pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him moses because she said i drew him out of the water years later After Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, Why are you attacking your neighbor? 
Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the, fair, from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he, he asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughters Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, as we have, have, have sang, uh, we want you to come. Come thou found, come thou king, come thou prince of peace. Lord, would, would you give us eyes to see as we've sung, we want to behold you. We want to behold our God seated on the throne. And we see you most clearly as you condescended to us. You became flesh. May we see you, Jesus, in this text. You are the greater Moses. You are the deliverer better than Moses. You've rescued us from our slavery and our oppression to sin. Thank you for that, Jesus. I pray that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, spirit work in our midst this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, it would be easy to jump from chapter one to chapter three. A lot of times we think of the most, one of the most famous moments in Moses' life as Moses at the burning bush. But I think there's a lot here in chapter 2 that we need not miss. Eighty years pass in this chapter. We see Moses as a baby boy. We see 40 years later Moses as an adult. Moses would then spend 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd with the Midianites. A lot happens in Moses' life. But let's look at our first scene. Moses' birth and his adoption. A deliverer is born to Israel. Notice that in verses 1 through 10, when we see Moses uh, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, that the focus is on Moses. You know, I've, I've heard some sermon preached on this. I've seen it preached as a Mother's Day sermon where they talk about the love of a mother and everything that Moses' mom did for him. That's certainly amazing, but I don't think that's central in the text. The chapter is about Moses it's about a deliverer being raised up. Our focus should be on Moses. Notice M Moses' mother, his sister, Pharaoh's daughter, they're all unnamed. We know Moses' parents' names. They're Amram and Jochebed. We're told it later on in, in Scripture. We know Moses' sister's name, Miriam, but the author doesn't even bother, bother here. Moses doesn't bother telling us their names. The focus is on Moses. The scene centers on him. 
And the point is that in the middle of oppression, in the middle of slavery, hopelessness, and darkness, the Lord was providing a deliverer. And Moses was certainly special. Notice it says he was born to two Levites. That may not sound like a big deal to us, but the Levites would become the priestly family. Moses is born to those that would be of the line of priests. He's called beautiful. In our version, it says that when his mother saw he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. There's something special about this boy. I want, to, I want you to look with me in verse three. It says, but when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Y'all are just gonna love this, but one of the most interesting things I think about this verse is the word that's used for basket in the Hebrew, it's, it's teva. It's only used one other time in all of the Old Testament. It's for Noah's ark. Isn't that interesting? It's the only two times that word is used in the Hebrew Bible. Noah's ark is this teva, and Moses' basket is this teva. Why would that be? You got a basket this big for a child and an ark. We know how big that is. We can just drive down the road and see it. It's much larger, right? Why would Moses use the same word for both of them? For any Hebrew mind reading this text, they would immediately think of another deliverer who was put in this and passed through the waters of death and found life. That's what happened with Noah and his family. While everyone else was wiped out, one family is preserved. Moses passes through in this basket the waters of death, and that's what this is, the Nile. All the Hebrew boys of his age are being cast into the Nile. They're being exterminated. They're being wiped out. But Moses is preserved. He finds life through the waters of death. And this scene is so full of irony. The very place where all these boys are being cast in and drowned would be the last place Moses should go, right? But his mother places him there. You would think that the boy should remain hidden, right? She put him among the reeds on the bank. You would think that the plan would be for, to re for him to remain, remain hidden. But what happens? He's found. And he's found by Pharaoh's daughter of all people. You would think that Pharaoh's household would be the last place Moses should be, right? The very one who ordered the extermination. But ironically, this is where he finds safety and refuge, and he's adopted. Pharaoh was afflicting the Israelites and killing them, the young boys, because he didn't want to be overthrown. He didn't want to use power. But ironically, it would be his own household that would become the harbor the safe refuge for the one who would deliver the people of Israel. His undoing was growing up right under his nose. Does that sound familiar? Jesus would be born into a world of oppression and tyranny, not only of the powers of Satan, death, and sin, but King Herod reminds us of Pharaoh, right? We read in the first opening chapters of Matthew that Jesus was born under similar circumstances. Herod didn't want to lose power. And so what did he do? He wiped out all the young boys in and around Bethlehem, two years and younger. But Jesus escapes. Jesus is preserved. And where does he escape to of all places? To Egypt. We see this theme in scripture 
these parallels, this thread that runs through the Bible. We see a deliverer through the waters. You see, it's not just Noah, a deliverer who passes through the waters. It's not just Moses. Israel itself would pass through the waters, right? I mean, one of the most famous scenes is the splitting of the Red Sea. Israel passes through the waters of death that would wipe out the Egyptian army, and they cross into the wilderness. Again, Israel, as they're about to enter the promised land, in a scene that can only recall the Red Sea, in Joshua chapter 3, the, the Levite priests, they lead the way, and they have the Ark of the Covenant on their back. They step into the Jordan River, and what happens? When they step into the Jordan River, the waters, it says, they pile up in a heap. The same words used in the Red Sea. And Israel crosses through this water into the promised land. Yet there's a problem. See, all these examples that I've just given, whenever they pass through the water, it doesn't always turn out like we would hope. Noah passed through the waters, but what happened on the other side? He becomes drunk, and the scene ends with actually his, one of his three sons being cursed, his offspring being cursed, it's not a happy ending. Moses passed through the waters, but what do we find years later? Moses himself does not even get to enter the promised land because of his sin and disobedience to God. Israel passed through the Red Sea, but what happens to that generation? They all die in the wilderness. They wander around 40 years because of their sin, because of their constant grumbling and complaining, they're testing God. None of that generation that leaves Egypt gets to find the rest of the promised land. Even the next generation that did enter the promised land, they suffered defeat of their enemies over and over again. They struggle with sin issues all along the way. They end up actually losing the kingdom that they gained and they're taken off into exile. All these things continue to happen in all of Israel's, Israel's history. Listen, when you read the Old Testament, over and over again what happens is this great hero arises, a deliverer arises, and we're like, is this the one? Is this the one to save us from our sin? Is this the one who's going to lead us to, to final rest? Is it Samson? No, he falls. Is it any of the judges? No, they fall. Is it, is it David, the pinnacle of Israel's power, the expansion of his kingdom, He's a man after God's own heart, but what does he do? He sins grievously, and not, with just, not just with Bathsheba, by the way. Samson, same thing, his, his heart is led away by his many wives, and it's just this gradual decline, and eventually our hopes for Israel's hero, it falls into 400 years of darkness. But Israel's hero did come, didn't he? And his name is Jesus. Mankind needed a deliverer, one who could represent us and save us and lead us into the promised land of perfect rest, lasting rest and peace with God. Jesus is the greater Moses, the one who passed through the waters but did not fail on the other side. And to continue this theme of passing through the waters with Jesus, you remember what happened at his baptism? He's baptized by John the Baptist and what happens immediately after his baptism? Every gospel records that he is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, where he's tempted for how long? 40 days, 40 nights. Does that sound familiar to us? You see, what happens with Jesus is he relives the temptations of Israel. He's tempted to worship a false god. 
he's tempted to put the Lord his God to the test. But Jesus, every time he succeeds where Israel fails, he succeeds when you and I fail. He perfectly obeys, and not just in the wilderness, but every single day of his life. And his perfect obedience qualified him to do what none of these other deliverers, none of these other half-saviors could do, and that's change our hearts. Liberate us from the powers of sin and Satan and death. You see, baptism is a type of all these events. It symbolized what Christ has done. He, he died and he rose from the grave. When you are baptized, Christian, this is what that symbolizes, that Christ's death has become your death, that you were buried with him in the waters, but you've raised to new life. You're not what you used to be. You've followed Jesus through the waters of death and you've become a new creation. If you need to become new today, to have your heart changed, to be freed from your sin, look to Jesus. So first off, we've seen that Moses, a deliverer had come and he'd gone through the waters of death. Look with me now in verse 11 to see how the Israelites respond to their deliverer. Verse 11 says, years later, actually 40 years, but it says years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and he observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Well, who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, when we think about what Moses did here, how he, he observes the oppression that his people are, are suffering, and he, he moves and he strikes this Egyptian down, that, that may appear to us a pretty bad thing, right? He buries the body, he runs away. And I get that, but what's, what's really interesting to me is in, the, is in the New Testament, when it talks about this, both in Acts chapter 7 and, and Hebrews 11, it, it seems to speak about what Moses did in pretty positive terms. Do we have that slide from Acts, Acts 7, the, the cross-reference? There it is. This is from Stephen's uh, sermon in Acts 7. Right before he's stoned to death, he kind of recounts Israel's history, and this is what Stephen said about this event. It says, when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Please flip to Hebrews 11, the next cross-reference. Hebrews 11 Speaking of Moses' actions, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking forward to the reward. Do you notice the way it's talked about? It portrays Moses as this avenger, this rescuer, this, this one who would not 
count his position as something to be grasped, but he gives it up to suffer alongside his brothers and sisters. It's very interesting. Hebrews 11, as we just read, it portrays his actions as an act of faith. Acts 7, he says he came to the man's rescue and he avenged the oppressed man. And in fact, if any blame is placed, it's on the Israelites for not understanding that Moses was their deliverer. It's on the Israelites for the hardness of their heart. Seems very strange to us. What we see here in in these verses is that Moses, the deliverer, though he sought to rescue, though he sought to mediate between his people, he's ultimately rejected and he has to flee. Have you ever watched a child, I'm sure you have, at Christmas time or at a birthday party and they receive a gift and right after receiving the gift, they get so possessive about it. They don't want to be told what to do with it. They don't want to be told how to open it. They don't want to be told how to use it. It seems strange, right? They, they just received this free gift, but now they, they reject any authority that would seem to tell them what to do with it. This is what the Israelites are doing. They're basically re- receiving the gift of Moses' oppression and then a slap to the face. We don't want your authority. This is what so many do today with Jesus. He is the deliverer greater than Moses. You see, Moses, he, he left the life of a mid-level aristocrat, Pharaoh probably had around, scholars tell us that Pharaoh had around 60 daughters or so. So Moses wouldn't have been like next in line to become Pharaoh or anything like that. But his would have been a life of comfort. He would have been provided for. But he leaves all that behind. He rejects his adoption in Pharaoh's family. And he chooses rather to suffer with Israel. How much greater is what Jesus has done for us? Jesus left the glories of heaven to come and become flesh and suffer for his people and die for them. Philippians 2 speaks to this so clearly that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. And he did this for us. Jesus not only died for us, but here's the thing. He calls us to follow him and to obey him. But what is the response so often, right? A lot of people, they want to take Jesus as Savior, but they don't want to follow him as Lord. And I would submit that if you don't want Jesus as Lord, you don't have him as your Savior. It's a both and. It's not an either or. It's an all or nothing kind of thing. If you don't want Jesus' authority, if you don't want to follow him, you don't know him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Jesus calls us to follow him. Let our response not be to Jesus. Well, who made you a commander and a judge over me? And by the way, Christians, when we choose our sin over Jesus, that's exactly what we do. We take the gift and we slap in the face to what he's done for us. For those of you here this morning who may be visiting or maybe kind of you're in this kind of stage where you're seeking out truth, you're kind of feeling things out, You need to know this. Jesus demands all of you. Following him is not a once a week thing. Don't reject the only one who can deliver you this morning. Don't reject the one who loved you enough to die for you. Don't reject the one this morning who's calling you to follow him, to lay everything else down, believe that he is who he said he is, 
He's done what he said he did. He loved you enough. Don't reject him. So we've seen that Israel's deliverer came. He was born. He was rejected. Look with me now to see that Israel's deliverer was given to the Midianites. Look at verse 15. It says, when, Mer- when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. It records that, that Moses fled to Midian. Midian was a place outside of Egyptian control. This was a land of, of pagans. They were non-Israelites, but interestingly enough, the Midianites were actually descended from Abraham. It wasn't through the line of promise. It wasn't through Isaac's line and Jacob's line. It's similar to an Ishmael-type situation. Midian would later become an enemy to Israel. In Judges, Midian oppresses Israel, and God raises up a judge, a familiar one, Gideon. Gideon liberates Israel from the oppression of Midian. But interestingly enough, this is where Moses flees. A deliverer was given to the Gentiles. Look with me in verse 16. It says, Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Again, just as before with his own people, Moses sees oppression, he sees injustice. And he's moved to do something about it. It says he rescued them. In the ESV, it says he stood up and saved them from the shepherds. And he waters their flocks. Moses, once he's accepted by these Midianites, he would stay with them some 40 years. He's in the land of Midian when he encounters God at the burning bush. And during these 40 years, Moses would would serve as a shepherd to his father-in-law's flocks. Moses is taking his first steps as a good shepherd. In this family, they respond in gratitude. They, they welcome him in with open arms. He, he actually is married into the family. He marries Zipporah, and they have a son. You see, Moses was rejected by his own people, but he's accepted by these pagan Gentiles. Look at verse 20 through 22. So, so Ruel, he's also called Jethro somewhere else. It says, they answered... Um, No, he said, so where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. So Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughters Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. This is so cool. The Gentiles are actually grafted in. Because of this marriage, because of Moses' marriage to Zipporah, these these Midianites are now going to benefit when God leads Israel out of Egypt. They actually join in. They kind of become a part of the family of Israel. And this is a theme we see so often in Scripture that while God is is fulfilling his promises to Israel, while he's leading them through the wilderness and through the promised land to establish a kingdom, all along the way, God is basically just pulling in Gentiles along the way. He's including them in the promises of Israel. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, her whole family is saved and brought into the blessing of Israel. She actually marries into the line that Christ would come through, the royal line. This 
pagan woman from Jericho. Ruth, she's a Moabite. She marries Boaz and she's brought into the promise. Again, she also marries into the royal line that would bring forth Jesus. The widow at Zarephath, Naaman the Aramean, the sailors in Jonah, all along the way in the Old Testament, God's including the Gentiles. He's showing that his heart is bigger than Israel. And that one day, the prophets are so clear in this, that one day, it wouldn't just be Israel, but the true Israel would be every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people would benefit to the promises of Abraham. Even with all these examples, sometimes it's easy for us to miss that this is why Jesus came. He is the good shepherd, the better shepherd than Moses. He had other sheep to bring into the fold, didn't he? He had you, he had me. We're Gentiles, by the way. We are by nature not inheritors of the promise of Israel. But God had us in mind when he went to the cross. He was bringing us in. Jesus didn't speak English. Jesus was a Jew. He wasn't white either. We're the pagans. He brings us in to the promise. We as the church, we can identify with Zipporah, right? Married in and receive the blessing. We as the bride of Christ have been married in. We've received the blessing. With me, the, the final verses of the chapter. The whole chapter really zooms in on the life of Moses. Now the author zooms back out. Verse 23. It says, After a long time the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. Listen to this. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Eighty years pass from the beginning of this chapter. The author highlights the groaning, the crying of Israel. What I find interesting is it doesn't even say that the Israelites were crying out to God. There's no object there. It just says that Israel was crying and groaning. But even so, God heard them. It says it ascended to him. God had not forgotten. When it says God remembered, let's just be clear about something. God didn't forget Israel. And then just kind of snap, snaps back into it when they start crying. God had remembered the whole time. He had a plan. He would act at just the right time to deliver them. He had made a covenant. He wouldn't break it. And I love the way God's described here. God hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. What I want you guys to see today is that what Moses did so imperfectly and in half, Jesus does perfectly and in full. Our deliverer has gone before us. He's gone through the waters. He calls us to do the same. So I ask you, if you're here today, have you followed him? Have you followed him in believer's baptism? And for those of you who have, if he's taken you through the waters of death and he's brought you to new life, do you not think that he'll be with you every step of the way? His, deliver, his deliverance is not a one-off. He's with his people always. He continues to lead us through the wilderness and into the promised land. 
Number two, our deliverer, remember, our deliverer is not only a savior, he's also Lord. Don't convince yourself that you can accept his sacrifice and reject his authority and his claim over your life. That's not a relationship that can save you. Embrace his authority, treasure him as both Lord and savior of your life. And lastly, remember and see that the good shepherd, the one better than Moses, has come to the Gentiles. You want proof that God hears you, remembers you, sees you, knows you? Look to Jesus. We're always wanting God's will for our life. We're always looking for this next revelation. Look to Jesus. It's the most clear example in scripture that he hears, he knows, he remembers you. He died for you. So for believers today, he will lead you. He's in control. He loves you. He will do what's best for you. Whatever you're going through, he'll be there. He's your deliverer, and he continues to be. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've never repented of your sin, and you've never believed in him, don't reject the only one who can save you. The only one who hears your cries. The only one who answers your cries. Turn from your sin today and be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you that you are our deliverer. You are one like Moses, but you are one greater than Moses. You are one better than Moses. You didn't lead us into the wilderness, Lord, to die there. You're with us, God. You will take us to the finish line. You'll get us there, God. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know you, that you would convict them of their sin, that you would bring them to repentance, Lord, that the scales would fall off their eyes, that the veil would be lifted, and maybe for the first time today, someone would see Jesus for who he really is, the savior of the world, the healer of the broken, the liberator of the captives. Lord, if that's anyone here today, would they come and find me, come and find Mark, find someone they trust, can talk to, and talk about what it means to follow Jesus, and find hope, find peace, find rest, find eternal salvation. Lord, I pray for those of us here who do know you, that we would not forget that you've already delivered us. You're with us through the fire, you're with us through deep waters, you're with us in the wilderness, you're always with us. Lord, we love you and we thank, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.